You'll open your, your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, as we get in, continue our overview of this you know, inspired account from our God and our Father. As you're doing so very quickly, I want to just kind of bring up some thing, a couple things in regarding to you know, last week, you know, kind of a bit of a review. As we were getting into the, you know, the plagues of God that were you know, cast upon the land of Egypt, as you think about that very quickly, these judgments, miraculous judgments that are coming upon you know, the people of the land, and one of the points we try to make is that these, these judgments, these plagues, are actually object lessons. There's lessons there to be learned, not just for the Egyptians alone, but also for the Israelites. So here you have the mighty outstretched hand and arm of God, and what he's doing, he's revealing himself. He's not just punishing a people. He's revealing himself, and what he's revealing is that he is God I am, and all the earth belongs to him. And so the judgments were not just punishments, even though you know, they were, but that's only part of the picture. They were also lessons, you know, they, God teaches us through his judgments. And so when you look at all those plagues together, you see there is no God like Jehovah, not only in his power, but also in his nature, in his character. And we try to very briefly touch on things that, that I think you can find in in the, uh, uh, the chapters that deal with the plagues. And that is you see in that also God's kindness and his compassion. You see the mercy of God, but also you see the forbearance and the long-suffering nature of our creator. All of that's present. We don't necessarily see that unless we slow down and think about really what's, what's happening, what he's doing, what he's saying, and how he is showing restraint on his part. I think it's reasonable to suggest that ultimately what God desired you know, was repentance, even from Pharaoh. Uh, and so you think as, as the plagues you know, increased in, in their severity, you know, and you think about the idea of you know, God giving Pharaoh the, the opportunity each time to submit. You know, now, God knew he wouldn't because... Pharaoh is hardening his own heart as God presented each demand. But God ultimately desires all men to come to repentance, and even men like Pharaoh. One thing I want to bring out before we get into our lesson about Pharaoh is this, and uh, you know, Brian, Brian was bringing this up at, after the class last week. We think about the character change of Pharaoh, and maybe not the character, but you know, a bit of his understanding changes uh, along the way. Now, Pharaoh never became a converted believer of Jehovah. But that's not to say that you know, God did not successfully impact him in the way he needed to be impacted. And the fact that God was able to change Pharaoh's thinking. He was able to change Pharaoh's understanding. And so we see, as you read through the, the, the plagues, you see this progression, this change that occurs in Pharaoh's understanding about God, about Jehovah. And so he's no longer ignorant of God. And so you think of when you start there in chapter 5, you know, verse 2, when he's first presented uh, uh, to Jehovah, and he says, Who is the Lord 
that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. He says, I do not know the Lord. And I think he's, he's not just being arrogant and, 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 and sarcastic there, you know, even though he was arrogant and boastful. I think he's being truthful. He did not know Jehovah. But God's going to teach him. And he teaches him each step of the way with the signs and the wonders that God performs in the land. And so you think about some of the things that Pharaoh says along the way. In chapter 8, he said, after one of the plagues, the plague of the frogs, he says, entreat the Lord. If you don't know him at all, you know, why would you ask someone to entreat him? And yet, he's been impacted enough at this point and says, okay, entreat the Lord to remove the frogs from me and from my people. So he knows, okay, God brought it. God can take it away. In the same chapter, verse 28, he again you know, asked this on a different occasion. He says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Make supplication for me. And so here is, here is Pharaoh who is ignorant at the beginning of who Jehovah is. And yet now, with each plague, with each event, you know, his thinking is changing. He is being impacted. He's not going to become a converted believer and follower of Jehovah. But he is learning something about God. In chapter 9, he confesses, I have sinned. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. And he goes on, and I, my people, are the wicked ones. And again, he asks, makes application to the Lord. One more example as you see that progression. In the 10th chapter, he again confesses, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. Here he begins with a, you know, he doesn't even know know, that there is a God that goes by the name I am. By the end, he knows there there is that God. And he is not just a God anymore. You know, he is the supreme God. Now, he doesn't serve him in the end, but he is definitely taught something about him. Sadly, you think about these, these things, you've got these momentary kind of shifts of recognition about who God is, the God of the you know, Hebrews, uh, but that's where they were. They were momentary shifts because, as you know, each time he would revert back to his pride and stubbornness, and he unwillingly chose not to humble himself before Jehovah. God gave him the, the, the opportunity to do that time and time again. But he would revert back to his pride and arrogance and boastfulness and refuse to submit. Well, let's get into our lesson tonight as we come to the, you know, the last plague. And, of course, with it, you've got the Passover and all that's associated with that. And the, ex- the Exodus begins. And so here in chapter 12, you know, Exodus chapter 12, God is continuing to show his power in the land of Egypt. And so he now is, through Moses and Aaron, instructing the nation and regarding the Passover. And uh, as, as you begin there in chapter 12, one of the things that stands out to me is the fact that he says, Okay, this month will be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So, you know, no matter what the ca- how, how they you know, looked at the calendar in Egypt, God says, okay, beginning now, this is your January. 
And from now on, this month will be your January. This will be your first month of your years. And why is that? What's significant about this month? Why is this the beginning of their year? What's a thought in regard to that? We're not told specifically to the answer to my question, but I think there's some reasonable answers that you could suggest. This is when they start becoming their own nation. Right. First step. Yes, and that's and just you know, that's the same thought I had, and I just said it a little differently, where I, I simply you know, said it was the beginning of them as a freed nation. You know? So here, here it is the, the beginning of their identity as God's chosen nation. Even though we know it's all part of God's plan going to Abraham and even before that, really. It was all part of God's plan. But at this point, you know, they're going to be treated as the nation of God. And so it's the beginning point. And so you know, it's, it's sensible to say, okay, this is the year you, you were freed and you became my, my people, my nation. And so this is your first month of, 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 of the year. And, and that will be the case from here on out. And the name of this month is called Abib. Uh, and of course, you have, does anyone necessarily run down through all the particulars of the Passover? You know, it's pretty plain, you know, pretty, pretty clear when you talk about, you know, what they need to do to prepare for it. You know, what they need to do in, in preparing that meal and how to eat that meal, all of that. And regarding to the one lamb per household, what kind of lamb and so forth, what to eat with it, you know, how, to, you, know, you, know, how, you, how you should be dressed for this meal. All of that are specifics that God gives them in regard to the observance of this Passover, which he will say later is to become an annual memorial. And so besides the meal, you know, the, the, the selecting of the lamb, the, the killing of the lamb, the roasting of the lamb, the eating of the lamb, besides that, you know, what other significant thing are they supposed to, are they supposed to do this night? What are they supposed to do with the blood? Okay, you're supposed to smear it on the doorframe. You know, the, the doorpost on each side and the lintel, you know, at the top. And so you're supposed to take some of that blood and smear it on it. You know, and very, you know, all of you know the answer and why. Right, because it says you know, at the bottom, you know, my, my page, not on your page, but the bottom of my page in my Bible, in, 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 uh, when it says, you know, when God sees this, you know, when he sees the blood, what's he going to do? He's going to pass over that house. When I see the blood, and we and you and this, you know, the thought of this chapter is put into hymns, you know, because there is a foreshadowing here going on, and so when God would see the blood, you know, on the house, you know, when He executed the final judgment, the the last plague that would finally break the will of Pharaoh, to say yes, you can go and and, and take everybody and everything with you, when He, you know. God knew, you know, what it would take. And it also, it is in this chapter, it says that when he, he's not only the judgment on the land against man and beast, but also it's against what else in Egypt? This judgment is against man, beast, and what else? God. The gods. And so that's not brought out so much in the earlier plagues. You know, 
your research you know, uh, probably could you know, you'd come up pretty quickly. You see correlation with, with particular things that God used and, and how that was affected to their faith, their religion, and what they worship and their gods. But here at the end, God says this judgment is against the people, it's against the king, it's against the, the, the animals, and it's against the gods of Egypt. God is showing that there is no other but me. And so, you know, the, you think about uh, this idea of, of, of striking the firstborn males and the fact that they're to take the blood, you know, and smear it so they're spared. What does this teach us about the nature of faith? What is this Instruction and this event teach us about the nature of faith. I can wait a long time. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Stop. Sorry. So uh, what I thought it was James 2, uh, I think it's James 2, where um, mm-hmm. even the demons believe. So you can have this uh, voice, this, this statement that you make, but uh, what God requires is uh, demonstration, uh, action, to show not only him, but to kind of show yourself mm-hmm. uh, that you're willing to follow through and, and, and be loyal in that faith. All right. right. And I think that's the practical aspect of this. It's teaching us about what faith does. Faith is going to manifest itself. It's going to, it's going to respond properly to God. Now, according to the instruction, according to what's said, you know, you know, if, if any of the Israelites failed to put the blood on the doorframe, what would have happened? There would have been a firstborn death in that house. You know, because it was the blood on the doorframe that prevented that house from being struck by this plague, this judgment of God. And this, and it, where, in, in that sense, God is making a distinction here. He, allowing, he, he is providing a means of their salvation. But unlike with some of the other plagues, the distinction where the, the, the plague didn't touch Goshen. With this plague, it's covering the land. And the distinction is only to be possible if they believed God's word and acted upon it. That's what made the distinction, and that's what would save them. And so you see the similarities here in regard to our faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, in that chapter about discipline and, and what the church is supposed to do with that erring brother that at the moment is not, is not penitent, but later becomes penitent, uh, he says, you know, the action that is to be taken is because Christ is our what? 5-7. Christ is our Passover. And so, you know, what's happening in Exodus, you know, uh, can't, David Toronto, please. Uh, what's happening in Exodus is not just a judgment against Egypt, not just a revelation of the God am, the God, the God I am and who he is, but also it is all part of God's plan to prepare us for Christ. David. Uh, there was a cause and effect to this as well. They needed to obey uh, mm-hmm. for them to receive that salvation. Yes. Right. 
Yeah, and so you think about the idea of faith, yeah, obeys God. Faith responds to God's instruction or promise. And if they hadn't obeyed, you know, in, in the instruction here, not just the door, but also the other aspect as well, you know, there would have been consequences. Nathan? I think going along with the idea of having to obey, it's, you know, God specified what to put on the door, what type of blood. Mm -hmm. You know, they, you know, they would be the lamb's blood. If they would have went out and got a goat's blood and put on it, mm -hmm. I feel, you know, that, that it wouldn't have been that protection. Yeah, it had, it had to be the, the blood of what they you know, uh, killed and roasted for the Passover. You know, and so you have the Passover meal, you have the lamb that's sometimes called the Passover as well. And so in the instruction, you actually have, it could have been a male kid. But the thing is, it had to be a one-year-old male lamb or male kid, unblemished. Yeah. And so it couldn't be a two-year-old kid or a two-year-old lamb. It had to be one-year-old, unblemished yeah, yeah, lamb or kid, male. Yeah. And, and so you're right. You know, it was spe you know, certain specific blood. You know, you know, which blood, where do you get it from, where do you put it? And you think of, you know, like, you know, regard to Christ. Christ is our Passover. And to me, you just think about the, you know, some of the, the correlation here. Uh, you think of uh, the idea of, okay, you know, the blood is being put in there, so their firstborn is saved. And Egypt's firstborn is going to be killed. And so cer certain firstborns are dying and other firstborns are living. Now well, I ask this question. Which firstborn died for you? Who's also called the firstborn? Jesus Christ. And so you, see, so you begin to see some correlation. So Jesus is the Passover, yes, you know, 1 Corinthians 5. But he's also the firstborn. You see that in Colossians 1. Uh, uh, he is the unblemished Male. He's the firstborn unblemished male. It's his blood that atones for us. It is his blood that propitiates. Yeah, in that sense, it's his blood that must be applied yeah, by faith and obedience you know, to the mercy and grace that God offers us. But another correlation, you think of the, you know, what's associated here with, with the, the Passover and the meal. What kind of bread had to be used? Unleavened. unleavened bread. Later on, they've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread that goes with that. And, and what does 1 Corinthians 5 also say to us? Not only that Christ is our Passover, but what are we supposed to be as a body of believers? We're told, remove what? Remove the leaven. For you are unleavened. And so you, know, and you think about this idea of the relationship uh, that we have with Christ and the foreshadowing here that's going on. You know, he's the lamb. You know, you know, he's, the, you know, he's the smearing of the blood. He's, he's all these images. He's the firstborn. And because of that, you know, we are to be unleavened. And we're going to share in this meal and have fellowship with him, then we must be the unleavened bread. And our body must be unleavened. 
And so just it's a very interesting thing to think about God's plan and God's provision. Once again, what he's teaching us, what he, you know, not, you know, not just about the events of the past, but about himself, about the Passover, about the lamb to come, and about us. It's just a beautiful, beautiful lesson for us to contemplate. Anybody want to you know, say anything more about that bit? Uh, concern, anything to add to it? Well, in chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 14, it's when you give instruction. It's, this is to be an annual memorial. You know, every generation is, is to you know, you know, learn from this memorial. Uh, you think about that idea. You know, you know, memorials are, are meant to be you know, object lessons. And we are to learn from them. And so he says, and what they're, to learn, they're to learn about what God did and, and who that God is. That this God, Jehovah, this God, I am, it's interesting when you think about when Pharaoh starts asking, make petitions, speak to your I am. Pharaoh uses the name that God gave the Hebrews. He says, you a, a petition, you entreat, I am for me. And so, you know, the generation as in this memorial is to commemorate that and to, you know, definitely into heart. And chapter 12 goes on also, the whole, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is associated with, how many days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Seven, Seven days, so it's a week-long feast, you know, and, you know, once again, you think all the imagery that's going on, you know, and, and you think about our Passover, our Lamb, and it's His blood, you know, that, you know, causes God to pass over us. And not bring judgment of his wrath upon us because of our sin. When did Jesus die? At what time of the year? Think about it. Think, think what happened right before he's betrayed and taken to all the authorities. Yes. He, had, he met in the upper room to observe the Passover. You know, and of course it's at that Passover he then, you know, at the conclusion, you know, institutes his supper, you know, taking two emblems from the, the meal the meal that was present, and 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 therefore institutes what we're to remember and keep in our heart and our mind. But isn't that you know, amazing to think that okay, Jesus who becomes the Passover who be, who's the firstborn who's going to die so us so we can become firstborn ones with him yeah all that happens at the time of the feast of unleavened bread yeah the one who was without spot and unblemished died for those who were full of leaven so they could be spared from God's wrath but and you think about the you know, near the you know, this you know you look at uh, in the twelfth chapter verse twenty eight you know kind of summing up all these things says the sons of men, sons of Israel went and did so goes what kind of what David Toronto was emphasizing you know you know this is what God said this is what God instructed and what they did it just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron they did 
He's one of the good, in the, you know, one of the, the high points. He's one of the high points in, in, in the history of the Israelites. When they would, by faith, do as God commanded. And, and when they did, they were always blessed. So in chapter, eight, chapter 12, at midnight, God strikes the land just as he had spoken. And I find that kind of uh, uh, another reiteration of God's word. You know, you can trust it. You can count on it. Not only were they doing what God told them, in verse 29 it says, At midnight the Lord struck the firstborn land, you know, as he had spoken. And so uh, they all die. Pharaoh, you know, you know, sends them out. And But one more thing, to see, see the impact that all these lessons have, have, have had on, on Pharaoh. Look in verse 32. Okay, okay, get, get, out of, get out of here, basically. All of you, I want all of you to leave. Take your flocks, take your herds. You know, just everybody go. But before he, he, he stopped saying anything, he asked one more thing. He says, bless me also. Did God make his point? Yes. Pharaoh knew. Jehovah didn't serve him. Didn't obey him, but he could not stand and say, I don't know you anymore. Pharaoh knew Jehovah and knew that if there was any blessing you know, reserved for him, it would have to come from I am. Well, they leave and, uh, you know, they actually, they actually plunder Egypt. But it's interesting to think how they plundered Egypt without ever raising arms in battle against them. God had uh, presented them so they were found favor and they requested gold, silver, you know, clothing, material. Why did God want them to do that? Think about the future. What's going to happen later on, months down the road? What are they going to have to be do, start doing? Building up the tabernacle. And they're going to, they're going to need silver, gold, and material. And so God, in his wisdom and his, his foreknowledge and in his plan, is each step of the way not only freeing them from their, this enslavement, but he is making sure they have everything they need for what he will ask them to do. And so at the conclusion of chapter 12, uh, you have, uh, once again, reiterating the idea of the Passover, the observance of that. But there's two things I want to bring out. One is that this memorial was to be observed for whom? Down, look at, yeah, down from 43. This is the ordinance of the Passover. Yeah. yeah and, he says, and he says, celebrate the Passover. Yeah, it's for them, but it's you know they're to do it, you know. So it's for their uh, memory. It's for their remembering. But in remembering, who are they doing it to? Who is it for ultimately? It's for God. Yes. Look there in verse forty-eight. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord. You know, they're not the Passover. Yes, it's for the benefit of the Israelite to keep. Fresh in their mind, God and God's outstretched arm of salvation. It is for their benefit. It is, for, it is to meet their need. 
but it is a celebration that is meant to be for God. For God. And you think about worship today. You know, we, we benefit from prayers. When we benefit from uh, admonishing one another in song, we benefit from gathering around the table together and proclaiming our Savior's death. We benefit from all of that. We are built up by that. We're encouraged. But who are we doing it for? It's, it's to the one that we worship. The God who seeks true worshipers. We worship for God. We don't worship for ourselves. We worship for God's glory and benefit. Anything but I want to add anything from chapter 12? You know, add any other comments that you know, I've kind of overlooked in just kind of scanning you know, uh, the material? Yeah. Anything we take here particular here? Or if not, just kind of going into the, into the 13th chapter, you know, once again, there's a bit of rep repetition here, uh, as you know in your reading, uh, all related to these feasts. One thing I just want to bring out again is in verse 8 of the 13th chapter, he says, You should tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I've already stated this, but I want to repeat it, and that is memorials are teaching opportunities. Even the, mem the memorial of our Lord is a moment of proclamation. We proclaim the death. It is a teaching opportunity. Yes, it is a memorial. It is a remembrance. It is, re it is reflection for us. It's a time of self-examination. All of that goes with that. But it is also a teaching opportunity. And God instituted all these different feasts throughout the, the Jewish year to be, yes, for him, to his glory, you know, to his praise, but ultimately to proclaim himself, to proclaim his power. And particularly this one had to do proclaiming his power and delivering them from slavery. That's what he says. You know, I, I want you to do this so that you teach generation after generation after generation that they do not forget who I am. And they do not forget what I did and how I did it and, and what a majestic thing it was when I freed you, you know, from, in that day, one of the greatest world powers that existed. And God delivered them out of that. Another thing that kind of strikes me is in this Reminding of what this been remembering and, uh, uh, that's associated with these feasts is verse 5. It talks about, okay, when, you, you know, when the Lord, when I bring you into the land, it talks to the different, the different nations present there. And so when I, when I bring you into the land, the very land I, I promised your fathers, there in verse 5, I promised to give you. And he says, and it's a land that, that is flowing with milk and honey. So it's a very rich, prosperous, fertile land. He says, you know, you need to do this when I do this, that you shall observe this right in this month. And what struck me is this, okay, this memorial is, is, is for the present generation, but it's, it's going to be a, a, a teaching opportunity for every next generation coming up. And especially, he says, you need to do this when you, when you get what I promised you. And you're all settled in, 
and you're comfortable and everything's good, you need to make sure you observe this memorial to remember what I did to get you here. You think about that idea of when we get comfortable, particularly with our physical surroundings, how sometimes that becomes a distraction, really, to our spirituality. God says, when, you, when, I, get you, when, I, when I put you in the place I promised I'm going to put you, I want you, I want you to make sure you observe this, this memorial. Because you need to remember, your kids need to remember, your grandkids need to remember, your great-grandkids just go on down every generation after. They need to remember who I am. And they need to remember what I did when I brought you out of Egypt and made you the nation that you are. But to do that, he says, you have to observe what I've told you to do in the way I've told you to do, at the appointed time I've told you to do. But all of that is to help them know God. Not just go through a ritual. Not just, you know, as we sometimes say, check the box. Well, I, you know, today's Passover day. I, I, I ate, ate the, the, the meal. I'm done for this. I, no, it, it is a time to reflect and remember and to think on God. Then, in this chapter, it talks uh, in, in greater length about this whole idea of the firstborn, and, and particularly the idea how the firstborn belonged to God, and this is all related to the last plague. The fact that God delivered them by the killing of the firstborn of Egyptians, therefore he says, your firstborn, man and beast, belong to me. And it's specified in this chapter, when he says, firstborn males. Earlier on, that's not as obvious in the text, even though I'm told Hebrew uses a masculine gender when talking about the firstborn. But in chapter 13, it identifies you're talking about sons, you know, male firstborn. And so every firstborn of animal and man is to be devoted to God. And he said, because God gave you freedom. But everything's not going to be sacrificed you know, as the lamb would be. And so what would they have to do? What did they have to do for a donkey? Redeem it the lamb. All right. Redeem it. Basically, purchase it back. Redeem it by sacrificing the lamb in place of the donkey. What did they have to do for their sons? Every firstborn son. What, it had to be redeemed, right? How did they redeem that son? Same way. They had to sacrifice a lamb in the place of the firstborn. And so the firstborn belonged to God. They had been set apart for God. Think about what Hebrews 12 says when it talks about the, the, the you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly to Jerusalem, you know, the... The general assembly of the firstborn ones. All right? That's a description of the church. So you, that's what you have, in Christ you have attained to this. You have arrived into this relationship. You have become 
firstborn ones of God. How did you get there? Firstborn belonged to God. You were redeemed. Each one of us are redeemed. That's how we became, you know, the firstborn or the firstborn born again ones is by redemption. That God's lamb, God's only begotten firstborn, willingly lay down his life so that we can have his blood to be our means of redemption. And so you think about you know, that idea, and, you, and, and this question is kind of, you know, you know, goes along with that answer. He said, what has God done for you to free you from your slavery? You know, well, he has redeemed you. He, he has sacrificed a firstborn so that, you know, so that you could be purchased and you can become, and so you and I can belong to him as adopted sons. So the Passover, you know, the firstborn, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of this is not chance. You know, God didn't say, oh, I, with this last plague, what can I do? <clears throat> what, what can I do with this thing? No. God, before time began, knew exactly what his plan was and is, and he knew exactly how he was going to carry it out, and he knew exactly how he would foreshadow it every step of the way. So Exodus is, you know, yes, it's a story about leaving Egypt and God's people and all the, you know, the things that happened to them. But it is an account of God redeeming souls by blood and judgments. And so he delivers them here. And so you get into chapter 14 and 15. When, okay, they're, they're free. And, and so they're going on. And, and of course, as you know, you know, Pharaoh changes his mind. Right? A little time passed. We don't know how many days or whatever has passed. But you know, God knew this was going to happen. You know, it was all part of God's plan. And I would suggest to you there in chapter 14, when God says, okay, tell, it's the most, tell the sons, turn back and camp before you know, Pahahirath between Migdal and the sea. That was part of God's plan. God knew exactly where he wanted them to camp. I would suggest to you, you know, what God is doing here uh, is, is the fact that, you know, he had, is working his plan out. And so he wanted the Israelites camped in a certain spot waiting for the army of Egypt to come back. God wanted all of that to unfold exactly like it unfolded. Because it was always part of God's plan. And God's plan always works out perfectly. God knew Pharaoh's heart. And so God, so here's Jehovah arranging the matters so that, so that ultimately he put an end to the pursuits once for all of Egypt. And he would manifest himself in this amazing way to these redeemed souls. And so God you know, chooses that. And so you think, okay, 
army comes, there's the, no trifling issue. You know, you know, it's reasonable to, uh, that uh, when the Israelites saw their former masters coming you know, with 600 selected chariots, you know, to think 600 tanks. Now, you don't carry a weapon. All you've got is stabs. Would you be scared? Probably. So don't do too harsh on the Israelites. But at the same time, God is teaching the Israelites here, I believe. And I think what's happening here is, is that God is going to show Israel who he really is. He's already, you think about it, you know, think about it. How is God showing him his presence already? Before the crossing of the Red Sea, how does God show his presence? Yes, you've got the two pillars, the, pillar, uh, the, the cloud pillar and the fire pillar. Each guiding you know, them in the direction, you know, when to stop, when to move, all of that's going on. That's already happening. God is always showing us that he, he, he's basically, I am your, I, I'm your shepherd here. Yeah. Just follow me. And so when, the, when they're in this camp and they're scared, and what, does he, what, does he, what does he do with that pillar? He moves it. Where does he put it? Between the two camps. God's protecting them. See, God is, is showing, you know, again and again, you know, who he is and that he is a constant presence and the fact that he is watching over them. He is watching over them. So I think this was, you know, all of this was not only to prove to the Egyptians, you know, one final lesson who God is, but I think it also was a test of faith to the Israelites. God's testing them. And so, got to, he, so he has the Israelites exactly where he wants them to be, at the sea, kind of backed up against the wall, army coming against them, I'm going to take care of you. And so he puts a barrier between them, and he says, okay, you know, there in chapter 14, you've got the well-known uh, statement in verse 13, he says, don't fear, stand by and see. Just watch me work, Israel. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. They just, they, they had expressed this idea, oh, you, you, you know, it's just like we said before, you should have just left us in Egypt, we were better off there. And God, through Moses, just stand and watch you know, God, God, you know, God didn't get them out of Egypt to let them be demolished by this you know, Egyptian army. And so God is saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to fight for you. All you need to do, you need to listen and you need to watch. And you need to simply do what I tell you to do and when to do it. And so who saved Israel? God did. Did Israel have to do something? Yes. Yeah. And they had to do it by what? By faith. Isn't that what Hebrews 11, 29 says? By faith, 
you know, Israel crossed the Red Sea. It took faith to step down into that river, no, not river, that seabed with two enormous walls of water, you know, just rising up above you. And there's, you know, there, there's, there's no pexiglass, there's, there's nothing holding it back but the invisible power of God. He says, so God says, to stand and watch. I'm going to show you who I am. And the thing is, God can still do that today. You think about, you know, how God protected Israel the entire time. You know, you know at the sea, getting across the sea, all of that. And how God was protecting them all along the way. God can still do that today. He can make distinctions between keeping his people safe in the middle of trouble. They are, they're in trouble. And God says, just watch. I can take care of All you have to do is walk. You just have to walk where I tell you to go. That's all you have to do. And I'll do the rest. God can do that for us as well. Thank you very much for your attention.